We pick up this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Continue where we left off last week in Luke chapter 1. This morning we will look at verses 5 through 25. This morning we'll look at Gabriel's message, and this will be part 1. Our key words for our worshipers in training are message, angel, and John. Now, it strikes me that you cannot miss, as you read through the Bible, the dramatic reality, the overwhelming testimony throughout all of Scripture that God is a God of small beginnings. He brings about the greatest and the most dramatic, the most brilliant, the most cataclysmic events in all the world And they pass through the most humble beginnings imaginable. Happens all the time throughout the Bible. Think of it. Almost unanimously. You can think of all of the major players in the Bible and see humble, small beginnings with each of them. And God is using them to do great and glorious things throughout redemptive history. Consider Moses. Moses' life began in a basket floating down the water became one of the greatest messengers of the, of the people of God. Consider Joseph, who rose to great power and authority within the kingdom. He began as a young man, and his brothers sold into slavery. Or young David, who became a king, a man after God's own heart. He began as a young shepherd boy who was laughed at when he stood to face the great giant Goliath. Or Noah, in his humility, in his obedience, as a God-fearing man, who while he was being mocked and scorned by those around him, faithfully obeyed what God had commanded him to do. Or Daniel, the young Hebrew boy in captivity, a devoted follower to God, who stood against persecution, who stood against those who would call him to bow down to false gods. These great testimonies of the Scriptures, of those who were small and weak and humble, and yet God used to do some of the greatest things we read of in all of the history of the world. And so it's no surprise that the the story of salvation, the redemption of the world, that is now finally at hand, that it would not come to bear as one might expect. Certainly wasn't the way that the Jews expected. They waited and they waited and they waited. They, They knew from God's Word that the day was coming since the very beginning. From the very beginning we read in Genesis 3, 15, that God was going to send one for redemption, to crush the head of Satan to redeem the people of God. Now that day had come, but what were they expecting? They were expecting this great, mighty show of military force, this great political movement that was going to come and and offer the people of Israel redemption. There would be great fanfare, and this man would come perhaps riding, riding in on a great stallion. He would rise to power. But that's not what we see at all. Instead, we see that this begins with a very common 
a very faithful couple. We're not looking first at Joseph and Mary. We'll see them next week, but rather Zechariah or Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, remember, as we looked at last week in verse 3, Luke told us that he's compiling an orderly account for readers. So he begins with the first instance of this notable shift that comes in all of redemptive history. We see in Luke's gospel what's not in the other gospel accounts. Luke provides us with the entire backstory prior to the birth of Jesus. And we're going to look at that next week. And I want you to notice the order and the structure of Luke's writing. How he writes about the, the announcement and the birth of, of two men, of John and, and Jesus. He provides us indeed with a very orderly account. So as we look at this great message that was given regarding the birth of one of these men, let's begin with what Luke provides us, a sort of historical background. Let's read verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was... Elizabeth. So here we have in the days of Herod the Great, Herod the king of Judea from around 37 BC to 4 BC. Matthew's gospel tells us that this was Herod who was so hungry for power, so desired to be followed and, and worshipped that at the time of the birth of Jesus, he ordered that all the newborn males would be put to death, that a new king of the Jews would not rise up. He was an evil man. He was wicked. He was hungry for power. Now the events of this announcement, the events of the beginning parts of the Gospel of Luke are happening toward the end of the rule of Herod. (laughs) Now Luke introduces us to a very unexpected and an unexpecting couple. Notice there's nothing extraordinary stated about these two people. Simply that Zechariah was a priest. He's not a notable priest. He wasn't famous. He wasn't the greatest of them all. Simply that he was a priest. And around, uh, around this time in Palestine, there were over 8,000 priests. Now the priests were divided according to the arrangements that were set up a thousand years earlier under King David. And so there were 8,000 of them. They were uh, divided into 24 different divisions after they came out of captivity from Babylon. Each division had about 300 priests. Zacharias, the scriptures tell us, was in the division of Abijah. This was the eighth division. And what would happen is they would go to Jerusalem and they would serve for two one-week periods every single year in the temple. All the divisions did this. Two weeks came, they went, they served, they returned back home. And each day during those times serving the temple, 56 of the 300 priests in the division were chosen to perform the daily functions of the temple on behalf of the Jewish people. 
And so this is what is going on, as we will read in just a moment, as Zechariah goes to serve within the temple. Now this name, Zechariah, this means, his name means the Lord has remembered. It's a very common name in this day, but we'll see the significance of this, specifically with this priest. And we read of Elizabeth says that Elizabeth was from the daughters of Aaron. She's also of priestly descent. And her name means, my God is the absolutely reliable one. Again, it's amazing to consider the meaning of her name in this context. She had the same name as Aaron's wife, and it pointed to this reality that God was a promise-keeping God. So, Zechariah marries this girl who comes from a priestly background. They share a very rich Jewish heritage. But they were just plain common people among the people of God. There were simply these two weeks of the year that Zechariah made this journey. He served as a priest of God for the people of God. But the rest of the time, he just lived his life in the village that he was assigned to. He helped the people. He counseled them. He served them. He provided for them. He taught them the scriptures. For the sake of comparison, very much the same way he would have functioned day to day like a pastor of a local congregation today. And so we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes. Of the Lord. Now, this is not saying that they were perfect. That's not what's implied. Simply, it says that they were walking faithfully with God, seeking to obey the commandments of God. It is the same way that Paul wrote of himself. He wrote, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's not saying he was perfect, but rather that he was obedient to fulfill the law of God. And when he fell short of it, to make proper restitution. So the Bible, we see throughout, makes this reference to many different people, that they were righteous. And yet as we read about those who were righteous, we read on the very same pages the sins of those individuals. And so in no way is it implied that they were perfect. The ultimate righteousness that provides any of us with a right standing before God is a righteousness that we cannot obtain on our own. It is only a righteousness that Christ can provide by His grace through our faith apart from works of the law. Prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, the people of God depended on the perfect righteousness of Christ just as much as we do today. They were simply looking forward while we look backward. So we simply see here that Zechariah and Elizabeth were godly, faithful individuals. He served as a priest. She a loving, faithful helper, wife to him. But there is something very significant about them. Verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now it's undeniably difficult for any woman in any culture to experience infertility. Barrenness. For some it's an almost unbearable stress. Some of you have experienced that yourselves. 
And in Hebrew culture, this barrenness, infertility compared to no other culture, it was considered among the Hebrew people a disgrace. Some even considered it a punishment from God. For example, consider when Hagar looked down on Sarah, when Hagar conceived, but Sarah didn't. Or when, when Leah referred to her former barrenness as a misery. Or when Rachel told Jacob, give me children or else I die. Or Hannah, who was infertile, wept bitterly because of her inability to conceive a child. Why? Well, the Jews concluded that God commanded families to be fruitful and multiply, and therefore to not be able to do so must have been a curse. And surely it wouldn't have been the fate of the righteous. So oftentimes barren women were shunned because it was supposed that they were unfaithful to God in some secret way, and He was punishing them as a result. And so they were looked down upon. They were despised. So for Zacharias and Elizabeth, this was a devastating reality. And we will see in verse 25 that Elizabeth calls barrenness her disgrace. And to add to it, it seemed as though the situation was not going to change. Luke is very clear to tell us there in verse 7 that both were advanced in years. They were an old couple. They had not had a child And physically speaking, there was nothing about them at this point in their age that would allow them to have a child. Read verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, within the division, obviously, there are a lot of different priests, but there's not enough functions for all of them to do. So they would come together and they would cast lots to determine who would do what. Casting lots, uh, very much as uh, in our culture, maybe flipping a coin or drawing straws. So they would do this to determine who was going to fulfill which function. Zechariah was to enter the temple... He was chosen to enter the temple and to burn incense on behalf, behalf of the people of Israel. Now, this was an incredible honor for a priest to be chosen to do this. So much of an honor that they were only allowed to do it one time in their entire life, and many of them were never chosen to do it at all. This was the closest that any priest was going to get to the presence of God on the earth. The only thing separating him from the Holy of Holies, when burning incense was a, was a curtain placed between him and the most holy of all places on the earth. Many priests were never given this opportunity. So imagine, Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple to offer the, the incense for the people of God. His adrenaline begins to flow. And with it becomes this alert attention that notes every detail around him. What joy he was going to have in telling his wife, Elizabeth, that he had this great opportunity. Zechariah was serving God with his fellow priests in the heart of the the gleaming temple. 
Outside, we read, in the court of Israel, faithful worshipers were there praying. But then came the moment to step into the holy place. The only time he would ever do it in his entire life. Before him, he saw the rich embroidered curtain magnificently woven in scarlet and blue and purple and gold. To his left was the the table of shewbread. Directly in front of him was the horn golden altar of incense, the one that he would approach. To his right uh, stood the, the golden candlestick. And Zechariah enters the most holy place. He purifies the altar and he waits joyously for the signal to offer the incense so that, as it were, the sacrifices went up to God, wrapped in the prayers of his people. A great and wonderful opportunity for this priest. The worshipers, the people of God, waited in the outer court until, until a priest completed this duty. Whenever the priest came into the holy place to offer incense, notice was given to everyone on the outside by the sound of a little bell. This was to signify that this was the time for them to begin praying. And we'll see in verse 21 that the people were waiting for Zechariah to return from the altar of incense and to proceed eastward to the steps in front of the sanctuary. On these steps, Zechariah, accompanied with the other priest, is expected to pronounce a blessing on the people. The benediction was to be given, to be followed by a song of praise, public offerings, and various other ceremonies that were a part of their worship. But the people wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Where is Zechariah? It was such a holy, solemn, important event that the the minutes must have seemed like hours as nothing was happening. What was going on in there? Why was Zacharias taking so long? Why had he not yet come out? The priest was to burn the incense, offer prayers for the people of God, and depart. And any delay was considered to be very serious. Perhaps he offended God and was taken out. Perhaps he was struck dead. It was a very, very serious thing. So what was going on inside the temple as he was offering incense? Well, Before we answer that, it's important for us to remember that Zechariah is serving at a time when there has been around 400 years of silence since God last spoke to his people. We see at the close of the Old Testament until the time that we are now reading of, there goes, there's 400 years since God has given any word to his people through a prophet. It's been 500 years since there's been a visit of any kind of angel. It's been 800 years since a notable miracle occurred during the time of Elijah and Elisha. God hadn't acted. God hadn't spoken. God hadn't sent an angel in centuries. It was all about to change. Let's read verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. There hasn't been an angel in 500 years. 
And now Zacharias, the only person standing in the holy place, all of the sudden to his right, an angel appears. Now, as a side note, I just want you to notice the detail in Luke's description. Remember, Luke told us he's a, he's a historian. Notice the detail, every detail to ensure that we recognize. He's simply not making up a story, but he's reporting the facts. This angel appeared. Where did it appear? To his right. Standing to his right. And so 500 years passed. No signs of any word from God. And now an angel. Zechariah wasn't there to stay long. He had a, a little bowl that was full of burning coals from the brazen altar to bring it to dump the coals on the altar of incense, to spread around, to put the incense on, a great cloud would arise symbolizing the prayers of the people. And then he would depart, simply doing his duty, the people outside doing exactly what was being symbolized by the incense. They were praying. And then the unthinkable happens. Something that just doesn't happen, something that hadn't happened for hundreds of years. An angel appears. And Zechariah immediately recognizes that this is not a normal occurrence. Look at verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. He was terrified. Think of this, a faithful man. He knew, he knew full well that God had not communicated to his people in any form for all of these years, and now he's face to face with an angel of the Lord. And Zechariah realized he was in the presence of a heavenly visitor. In many ways, this is the same response we see of, of John in Revelation 19 when he saw an angel. John was not only fe- uh, full of fear and awe, but immediately he fell down to worship the angel. But Zechariah was gripped by, by fear. He saw an angel. What does the angel say to him? Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Isn't it great? The angel calms his fears. Stop being frightened. Cheer up. I am, I'm here with good news. It's so encouraging to read the Word of God and see how often God tells us, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Take heart. It's another way of God telling us, have faith. Trust, believe the promises that you know are true because God is faithful. That's rewarding. That's so encouraging. Now listen to what he says next. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now there's a lot going on here. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer is the angel speaking of? It's really twofold. At first, it, it appears that he's referring to the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child. No doubt. They spent many years of their life praying for God to take away her barrenness, to give them a child. They so badly wanted a child. They so fervently prayed for this child. Is it ever the case for you that you so badly want something and so 
often pray for that thing over and over and over again. It seems like years, perhaps seems like decades. You hear nothing from the Lord. So often they prayed for this very thing. But there's something else going on here also that was even more significant. As, off, as he's offering these incense, Zechariah would not have been praying a personal prayer for a child. After all, we're going to see in his response to the angel's announcement that this was probably the furthest thing from his mind. Zacharias, as a faithful priest, would have been praying on behalf of the Hebrew people. He would have been praying for the redemption of Israel. That Israel would be set free and that the Redeemer and Savior would come. That the Messiah would arrive and release them from the oppression. And so we see two things as the angel announces that your prayer has been heard. Obviously, God has not forgotten about the prayers that they have offered regarding a child. He announces, your barrenness is over. But the bigger picture, the more significant picture here, is that the birth of this child signifies the beginning of Israel's redemption. Elizabeth is delivered from her physical affliction, while the world is likewise delivered from a spiritual condition as a result of what was to come. So this son that was to come, he was far more than a son. He was a response to two specific prayers, a prayer for a child and a prayer for the redemption of Israel. The angel tells him, you shall call his name John. The name John means the grace or the gift or the mercy of the Lord. The beauty is in the details here, isn't it? There's so many layers to what the angel is saying. There's so much depth. Truly, the birth of John was the grace of God on his people. A gift of God to his parents, but also to the nation of Israel. The mercy of God is finally breaking the silence to provide a way of redemption for God's people. It was a great gift that was about to come. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Second only to Christ, this son would have a soul unlike any other who had ever lived. He will bring great joy to his parents. They will delight in his presence. And even more, many will rejoice at his birth. Again, the significance here cannot be lost. The role that John was to fill was an even higher honor than that of which his father was presently performing in the temple. While his father offered the incense to God of the prayers of the people, John was the answer to that prayer who would be the great proclaimer of the good news of redemption. Now we see that John would be a godly man who is set apart for a glorious task. And many have insisted that John was a Nazarite. And he took the Nazarene vow based upon the angel's statement that he must not drink wine or strong drink. You can read the vow of a Nazarite. It's outlined in Numbers chapter 6. It includes various requirements. 
And significant to John was the part of the vow that stated that a Nazarite was to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall not eat. Nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So this may point to John having been a Nazarite. But there were other requirements that were not mentioned regarding John. For example, the vow include that no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. So we don't see that about John. So while it's possible, it's not conclusive that he took the vow of a Nazarite. Nevertheless, the same principle here applies. John was to separate himself unto the Lord. He had a special task. His filling would not be anything from the world, but rather the Holy Spirit. Now pay attention here. When? When would he receive the filling of the Holy Spirit? Another way to ask this question is, when was John justified? Was it when he had the intellectual ability to assent to the lordship of the Messiah? Was it when he prayed a specific prayer or went through a specific ritual? No, the text tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in Elizabeth's womb. Isn't that amazing? What do we understand it to mean when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? They're regenerate. They're new creations. They are saved. Does this not point to the absolute sovereignty of God in working in the hearts of His people? How comforting to know that God is in control of our wicked and deceptive hearts, filling John with the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. And so we see from the very beginning that John was going to be a remarkable man, a man prepared for special service to God through spiritual disciplines. The bottom line, this son that they were going to have was going to be extraordinary. So extraordinary that he would have the greatest privilege that could ever come to a Jew. He would have the greatest privilege imaginable, the greatest privilege that any man could ever hope for, a privilege that no one had ever experienced. He would have the privilege of being the first person to identify the Messiah. The prophets had all talked about the Messiah, but none could ever point to him. John would say, pointing to Jesus one day, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John would have the greatest privilege that any prophet could ever have. He would be the greatest of the prophets because he would be the one to point to and identify the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. Can you imagine how great a privilege this is? Let me remind all of us, we have that same privilege. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, has been identified. And if you are a Christian, you have the great privilege to point to Christ, to call on all men everywhere, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a great calling we have, Christians. 
This is a great announcement. And John was the first who got to make it. And we simply follow in his footsteps, calling all men everywhere to behold the Lamb of God. Look at verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, a cursory reading of the Old Testament will point you to the very fact that Israel was, through their sins of disobedience toward God, again and again and again estranged from God. And the prophets function to call the people back to obedience to righteousness and a faithful service unto God. So John, the angel proclaims, will call the people back to God and many of them will turn to the Lord. That was a side. It's important to note what's implied here. Many people assume that the Jews are God's people. Therefore, they get a sort of free pass. That flies in the face of what the scriptures tell us. Remember, even early on in the Old Testament, it was clear that not all of the Israelites were preserved in the covenant of God simply because they were ethnically Jewish. God's people, Israel, becomes most evident in Paul's writings, were never based upon their ethnicity. God's people Israel were and still are the faithful believers with regenerate hearts living in obedience to God as a result of that regeneration. Paul reminds us in Romans 9, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. That seems clear in the angel's announcement of what John says he will do. He will call the Jews to repentance and to obedience. And some of them will hear and heed that call. Verse 17, And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel here attributes to John the final words of the Old Testament. John would be the one who would fulfill the words of the prophet Malachi. Read in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, the prophet Elijah, you remember, denounced the apostasy of his own people as they turned away from the Lord. He had withstood the pagan prophets of Baal. Elijah was a prophet of great faithfulness, of great courage. He spoke with great power. The angel tells Zacharias that his son would come in the spirit and the power of this great prophet. John's ministry would so affect the hearts of people that it would completely revolutionize the way that they live their lives in their homes. He says, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers. What's being indicated here? Hearts that are regenerated. Regenerated hearts produce reprioritized lives. Families are redeemed. Just think of this in our our own church. Many of you have experienced or you've, you've watched this happen in your own family or in other families within our congregation. It's amazing how God works in this way, isn't it? 
He will transform the heart of a father. And that man will begin walking faithfully with the Lord, leading his family according to the word, praying for his family, learning the word, walking in obedience. And then you begin to see this this total transformation take place. Wives are changed. Children are changed. The entire household is transformed. Sometimes it happens through a quiet and gentle spirit of a godly wife. And God is pleased with that, according to 1 Peter 3. It's it's really interesting here that the angel narrows in on the family, on the home. Uh, Many writers have speculated as to why this might be. No real solid conclusions. But at the very least, it seems evident from the Bible and from our own experiences in life as a church. We see it time and time again that as the hearts of fathers are oriented toward raising their children to understand the Word of God and as fathers pray for their family and teach their children and discipline their children according to the Scriptures, as they serve as faithful churchmen, and set the example for their families to follow, God does something with that, and it's remarkable. It's so fun to watch. I'm so glad to see those circumstances, to see those situations play out in our own church family. Many of you have seen that happen in your own family. Great, great reason for us to rejoice. All of this because the Messiah was coming because the Messiah has come. The angel tells Zechariah that those who are disobedient will heed the wisdom of the just and the hearts of people would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. I, I want you to notice a little grammatical nuance here that is significant. Verse 17, we read, and he will go before him. Who's the angel referring to? He is John. John will go before him. Well, John will go before whom? We know the rest of the story, so we know it's Jesus. John will go before Jesus. But look how the angel refers to the Messiah. Who is him? We have to look back at verse 16. And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's it. That's the subject of the word him in verse 17. The Lord their God. In other words, the angel is here, the angel here is referring to Jesus and attributing to him the divinity, the Lord their God. John will go before the Lord, our God, in the spirit and power of Elijah and call people back to God. Isn't that amazing? It's important that we see those little nuances. They add richness to the biblical story. John would go before the Lord, our God, who is Jesus. So let's picture this. Old Zechariah, serving in the heart of the temple, The sacred ambiance overwhelms him. The light from the flickering golden candlestick reveals the richly embroidered hues of the cherubim on the veil before the Holy of Holies. The golden altar of incense glistens in the light. The aroma of worship swirls around him. 
It's the grandest day of his life. Zechariah's praise for the redemption of his people and a supernatural being is there. And then the being speaks, promising a son whose name evokes the favor of God. He prophesies regarding the son's character, his spiritual formation, his ministry, invoking the final lines of the Old Testament, attributing them to the life of his son who was yet to come. This is remarkable. Imagine what's going on in the heart of Zechariah. But how does he respond? How does he respond to all of this? Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, I think it's humorous how he refers to himself and his wife. I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years. Now, as a godly man, the announcement of the angel seems at first to be way too much for Zechariah. He cannot think it possible that an old man like himself should have a son. It seems like a reasonable question. But in reality, Zechariah's response nearly amounted to, I don't believe you, for people as old as we are do not become parents. Now, a well-instructed, believing Jewish priest like Zechariah should not have raised such a question. There is no doubt that he was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. He ought to have remembered the wonderful births of Isaac and Samson and Samuel. He ought to have remembered that what God has done once, he can do again. And that with God, nothing is impossible. But he forgets all of this. He thought of nothing but the arguments of mere human reason. Let us learn from the wisdom of the scriptures and the faults of Zechariah. It is a fault to which God's people in every age have been sadly guilty of. The histories of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, all of these show that a true believer will sometimes be overtaken by unbelief. It's one of the first corruptions which came into the hearts of men. The day of the fall when Eve believed the devil rather than God. It's one of the most deeply rooted sins by which every believer is plagued and which we're never entirely freed from until we die. Let us pray daily, Lord, increase my faith. Let us not doubt that when God says a thing, that this thing shall be fulfilled. Zechariah knew that he and Elizabeth were, were well beyond childbearing age and even when they were in their normal years of childbearing capacity, she was barren. And isn't it amazing? He'd been praying for a child all this time. God sends an angel to stand before him to announce that he's going to have a child. And then he doesn't believe him. It's kind of like the people praying for Peter in Acts chapter 12. Remember that story? They're having a prayer meeting because Peter's in prison. Oh God, our Lord, get, get Peter out of prison. And the Lord lets him out. He comes to the house. He knocks on the door. A girl goes to the door and she sees Peter standing there. She closes the door and she goes and tells everyone who's praying, hey, it's Peter at the door. 
They're in the midst of praying for him to be released from prison. Peter's at the door. And what do they say? Ah, it can't be Peter. He's in prison. (laughs) That's not exactly great faith, is it? So often that's us. So often we pray and then we don't believe when it happens. Let's pray together. Lord, increase our faith. What happens with Zechariah? Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The angel now identifies himself as Gabriel. Why is this significant to Zechariah? Because he knows the scriptures very well. Zechariah would recognize that Gabriel appeared in the book of Daniel and he didn't come with small announcements. He came with earth-shattering messages, monumental messages. And he tells Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God. I'm coming down from the very throne room. I've been sent by God. So Zechariah receives this earth-shattering message from Gabriel. And his response is unbelief. And Gabriel tells Zechariah, I was sent to bring you this good news. Not so much the good news that Elizabeth would have a son, as good as that news was to their family. It was the good news that the Savior is coming. The good news that the, the gospel announcement can now be proclaimed. The Messiah is coming. The Savior will be here. Jesus will be here. And Zechariah, your son, will be the first to tell of him. That good news. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah would now have nine months to reflect on his unbelief in silence. Now, notice that Gabriel says that these things that he was told will be fulfilled in their time. Mark this down. God is sovereign and he will do his plan And it does not rise or fall on the faith of men. God is sovereign. What changes is not the plan, but your part in the unfolding of that plan. Faithless people do not change the plans of God. They just forfeit the blessedness of being a part of it. It will come. He says, it will happen just the way that he said it will happen. In essence, he's telling Zechariah, it's too bad you won't be able to be a part of the proclamation of this great reality. Perhaps Zechariah wanted a sign, but I'm guessing this wasn't the one that he was hoping for. Nevertheless, God is merciful and there was an end in sight. It was only until the birth of John. Let's see how this ends. Verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Well, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in my days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
Now, there's a significant connection here between verses 23 and 24. Notice, Zechariah went home and then Elizabeth was made pregnant. Now, this eliminates any notions that perhaps she conceived with someone other than Zechariah as to discount the miraculous occurrence. And notice also this sets John in stark contrast with the second burst that Gabriel is going to announce, that of Jesus. John was obviously born of the seed of man in the womb of a woman. Jesus, on the other hand, it would be announced to Mary, would be born in the womb of a virgin. So Zechariah returns home. Elizabeth would be waiting for him. But he wouldn't be the same man who left. As I was thinking about this, it doesn't say anything about their, their meeting when he got home. I wish there was a little paragraph in there that tells us what it was like as Zechariah came home. And he, he sees his wife and she says, Well, why aren't you talking to me? What are you hiding? You know how that conversation went. <laughs> You've been gone for two weeks. What do you have to say for yourself? What's going on? It must not have turned out too badly, though. She conceived a child, after all. <laughs> but this whole drama unfolds. And it doesn't tell us what happens when Zechariah returns home. It doesn't matter in the redemptive plan of God. It simply says in verse 24, here's the finale. After his punishing reproof, we come to this epilogue. Verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. But really, this seems to be the understatement of all understatements. Zechariah went home, Elizabeth got pregnant. It's a miracle. And what's so significant is that this pregnancy is the breaking of God's silence for 400 years and it's the launching place for an avalanche of miracles yet to come. A miracle happens to this old couple. She becomes pregnant and it all unfolds from there. And this miracle of new life continues today out of barrenness. God in His sovereignty brings forth new life out of barrenness. God in His sovereignty gives new life where there is no life. God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah is an example of this. We see many examples of this. Menorah and his wife, Samson, came from barrenness. Then he came to Hannah, the barren wife of Elkanah. Samuel was born. We see all these examples through the Old Testament. Life coming out of barrenness. And he came to the elderly Zacharias, to the barren Elizabeth, and John the Baptist was born. But all of this merely paved the way for the greatest example. So the Spirit of God overshadows Mary, a virgin. And the head of God's new creation was conceived and later born. In his sovereignty... God makes a barren womb bear new life. <clears throat> this is the pattern that lies behind Jesus' words to Nicodemus. You must be born again. God alone can give new life where there is barrenness, where there is emptiness. Like so many others, before and after him, poor Nicodemus could not understand what Jesus said. 
He expected Jesus to tell him what he must do to participate in this work of God. But what could he possibly do? Could he return to his mother's womb and be born a second time? Although he was a great theologian in Israel, he had not understood the teachings of the Old Testament that emphasized God giving new life. That life begins with God's work, not with our doing. And so here's where God is directing us in his word this morning, and we'll be done. For the Christian, you've been transformed by the power of the gospel. You've, been experience, you've experienced the great joy of seeing the promises of God fulfilled in your life each and every day. And yet when prayers are answered, are you still responding in unbelief? Our hearts are so prone to unbelief. Our unbelief is a denial of the very power that is so central to the gospel. Namely, the power of the resurrection. That God the Father has raised Jesus from the dead and likewise He has raised dead sinners from death and has caused them to walk in the newness of life. That was you. He raised you from the dead. He's caused you to walk in the newness of life. Listen, every time we respond to God in unbelief, we are denying the power of that resurrection work. Are we going to respond in unbelief? Yes, we will. Will we be chastised for it? Perhaps. But here's the silver lining in it all. Thanks be to God that he has shown us time and time again in his word that he is faithful to his people. After 400 years of silence, I bet it's pretty easy to get to a place where you say, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he's going to pull through with this whole Messiah thing. Maybe he changed his mind. And then in the most unexpected way, he shows up. When God shows up in unexpected ways and brings about the fulfillment of his promises in the most unlikely of circumstances, don't be surprised. This is how God works. That's how God has always worked. It's a call to have faith and to trust the Lord at his word. And so when we're praying, we expect that God will answer. This is our call as Christians. And for you who are here this morning who have not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us of a God who has brought life where there was no life. In a barren womb, God brought about the miraculous birth of a man. Likewise, in the barren womb of the world, God is gracious to bring about new life in Christ. Whether you recognize it or not, If you're not a believer in Christ, the Bible is clear that you are dead. I know you don't realize it because your heart is beating and you are breathing, but you are dead. More specifically, the Bible says you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And the Bible says that you must be born again. How? Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. How? How does he do that? Apostle Paul goes on to say, 
He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He placed the wrath that was due to you and me upon His perfect, holy, and righteous Son on the cross. And our sin was transferred to Him and His righteousness given to us that we would have a right standing before God in the newness of life. The new birth is a miracle. The fact that any of us are sitting here right now is a miracle. None of us are better than any. None of us are more worthy than any. It's simply that we are recipients of God's grace and mercy. God has given us new life out of barrenness. If you're not in Christ, I plead with you to be born again by the power of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful testimony of your work in the lives of your people to bring about new life and redemption. We thank you, Lord, that you opened the womb of Elizabeth to bring forth John, who would announce with great power and boldness, Behold, the Lamb of God. I pray, Lord, that you give those of us who are believers in Christ that great power and boldness to call men everywhere to behold the Lamb of God. I pray that you give us great hearts of faithfulness, that we walk in faithfulness, that we trust you, that we believe your promises, and as we pray, that we would anticipate you doing the great things we pray for because you are a God who answers all. Our prayers, you are God who fulfills all his promises. And Lord, for those who are not believers in Christ, we pray that you would bring them from death to life, that you would cause them to be born again and walk in the newness of life with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Please do that. We anticipate that you shall in your timing, with your power, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.